Good evening. Time to begin our services tonight. It's good to see everybody tonight. First song number 825. 825. If you don't mind, stand please. Jesus, my heavenly King, loves me, I know. Seated, please. <clears throat> Next song tonight is Surround Us, Lord, on the screen only. And after the song, uh, Mike Williams has our reading of prayer. <clears throat> Surround us, Lord. As the mountains
The scripture reading that Chris has selected for this evening comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we approach you this evening, Lord, just thanking you, God, for for being our God, we thank you for revealing yourselves through us, to us, through your word, through your creation, for showing us the hope that we have, Father, through your son, Jesus. We thank you for him, for the ability to remember the sacrifices that he made for each one of us, Father, through your plan of salvation, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the church family here at Rome, Father, we Thank you for all the many blessings of last year, and as we transition to a new year, Father, we ask your blessings upon each one of us, upon this church family. Pray that we will continue to, to strive to, to know you better, to study your word, and to be better followers of you, Father, and as we uh, have a new theme for this upcoming year, Father, around evangelism we pray that we will look for opportunities to share with others the hope that we have and and bring more people to know you lord and we again thank you for all that you do for us we're mindful of so many that are struggling this day with various health issues we ask your blessings upon each one of them those that were mentioned this morning we pray for jennifer she continues to to recover and, and just uh, goes through her cancer treatments we pray for pad and jackie floyd and her family and terry leap as he continues his treatments and so many others father that are battling various health issues be with each one of them and be with our shut-ins this time of the year it can be difficult and for those that have lost loved ones recently as well father we know this is a tough time of year for for, for them as well and we're mindful of that Father, just be with our time here this evening. Pray that everything that we do is pleasing to you as we sing praises to you and be with Chris as he delivers the lesson that we'll be good listeners and take what he shares with us and, and put that to work in our lives again to, to be better disciples for you, Father. And Just be with all that we do. And Father, we know that we mess up so often that we fall short and forgive us when we do fall short and sin against you and it's through jesus christ we pray these things amen song of meditation this evening is 822 822 and for the lesson tonight number 571 would you stand please We'll sing this one here often, but we should know it. Most of us should know it. <clears throat> Seeking the lost, yes, kindly
seated, please. Good evening. On Sunday nights this month, we're talking about the shortest verses in the Bible and what they mean to our evangelism. What, what do they say about our evangelism? Um, so it's just an interesting way, a little bit of a, a takeoff, I guess, uh, on to get us thinking about evangelism and uh, these verses being evangelistic. Tonight we're focused on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, you're familiar with it. You can probably quote it. It says, rejoice always. The King James says, rejoice evermore. And so tonight we're thinking about rejoicing always and what that has to do with our evangelism. So I don't know um, how easy you are to buy Christmas presents for. I am really hard to buy Christmas presents for because I don't know what I want. Um, I want you to surprise me, but I want to like it too. And so I don't know what that is oftentimes. Um, and so it's hard for me to tell other people what that thing is. And so I am notoriously difficult to buy a Christmas present for. Um, this year, I started keeping an Amazon wish list. And so I put books on there and other variety of things. And so I just kind of point my family members towards my Amazon wish list. And if you want to buy me something, a book is always an appropriate gift for me. It's always a win. And so my brother-in-law was very kind, and he and his wife bought me a couple of books that were on my wish list. And I thought, man, that's, that's really a great gift. Thank you so much. And then uh, we did Christmas with our family, and Kelly bought me this thing. This is a, an authentic Roman arrowhead. Now that's cool. I like this much more than I like the books, although I found the books to be very thoughtful, very kind, and exactly what I asked for. <laughs> this thing was much more interesting to me. I didn't even know it existed. Um, let me tell you the story about this thing. So uh, about 56, 57 AD, so about 57 years after Jesus uh, has been born, the Romans uh, are doing a different type of government. They're in a triumvirate. So there's three guys that are in charge of Rome at this point in history. Uh, and one of the guys' names is Crassus. And so he wants to go and expand the Rome uh, to to expand the Roman Empire, and he's looking at Parthia. And so he goes next door to their neighbors in Parthia, and he asks them kindly, with forty thousand of his troops, if they wouldn't mind becoming a part of the Roman Empire. Of course, they say no, but they say no with ten thousand cavalrymen. And so Crassus has brought in forty thousand elite Roman soldiers. These guys are wearing. The short swords, they're carrying the spears, they've got the bucklers that the Roman Empire is known for, the legions are known for, and this is a fierce fighting force. 40,000 Romans, you don't pick a fight with them and win usually. And especially when you're outnumbered four to one, the Parthians are able to bring 10,000 cavalrymen to the field and they wipe the floor with the Romans. Now why? Well, the Romans didn't use bows and arrows. And so when the Parthians came in, they brought in uh, 10,000 cavalrymen that were expert, not only archers, but also export, expert um, horsemen. And so these guys were able to wipe the floor with the Roman army, so much so that the Romans are forced to retreat. And Crassus comes back, he falls back, and he gets together with his generals. And he says, well, what are we going to do now? And they, so they form up a new plan. They go back into the Parthian uh, arrow field, <laughs> uh, and they lose again. So much so that this time they retreat all the way back to Rome. Crassus is actually killed by his own soldiers. But very soon after that, they begin to use the arrows. And so this is an arrow from around 2,000 years ago. I geek out over that kind of stuff. My point is, some gifts are more poignant than others. Some gifts are more meaningful than others, right? And the more you know the background on a gift, the more special it is to you. I didn't even know I wanted that, but I really, really like it because that's where my mind goes. I like thinking about history and I want to I touch a piece of history and I'm touching something that 2,000 years ago, a Roman soldier touched. And I think that is really, really neat. So some gifts are more meaningful than others. Tonight we're talking about a gift we've been given. A gift that's more meaningful than anything else. The gift of salvation. 
we were in an incredibly dangerous situation. We were, in fact, in the most deadly situation before our salvation, before your baptism. You were in the most terror-stricken situation possible. Now, I think it's important for us to walk through this section of this thought before we get to the next bit because we never really understand, we never really appreciate the gift of salvation until we understand what we've been bought away from, right? It's like, it's like my gift here. It's, it's meaningful only because we understand the background. And so I wanted to walk you through just for a couple minutes the background. I'm sure you're already aware of this. Uh, it's something a lot of us have thought through, but I think it's important to stop for just a little while and remember what we've been bought out of. And so I want you to flip back to the prophet Isaiah. We're going to start with him. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. During Isaiah's day, the children of Israel are far away from God. They don't really care anything about him. They're following the rules, but their hearts are so far away from him. Their legalistic ritual following of the rules it doesn't really matter. Their hearts are, are not in it. They're simply going through the motions, and God says that's not good enough. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. And so he's walking you through a couple of scenarios here as to why Israel is struggling. Well, Isaiah kind of paints this picture. Well, maybe, maybe you're too far away for God to, to reach out and save you. No, that's not it. It's not like, it's not like his arm's too short to reach out and, and, and help you. Well, that's not the problem. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's that he's, he's, too, he's hard of hearing, and so he can't hear your cries out to him for help. No, that's not it either. It's not that his ear's too dull so that he can't hear your cries of help. Those things are not the problem. It's not an insufficiency on God's part. It's not his problem. It's not his failing that has caused the predicament that we've been put in. Well, whose is it? It's ours. Listen to what Isaiah says in 59 verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. There comes a point, and there came a point in Israel's history where God turned his back on his people. These were people that were in covenant with him. These were, this was Israel, and this is his covenant people. All the way back from Sinai, he's been building this nation, even before Sinai, really. He's been building this nation that were only going to follow him, that were going to be sold out, completely devoted to him. But now they're not. They're just going through the motions. And it is the most tragic perversion of the religion that God desired them to worship with that he can fathom. He can't, he can't handle it anymore. So he's, he's cutting them off, or at least he's about to. The time's coming. It's quickly approaching when that will happen. And we're, we're going to look at that in Hosea in just a minute. But I want you to see something else in, in Isaiah first. Flip, flip back over to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. This is how he starts the book. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Simon and Gomorrah have obviously been gone for a very long time at this point. So who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel. He's talking to people who will worship him. <coughs> Excuse me. Or at least who should be worshiping him, who are called by his name, who are his people. But he's saying, you're not my people anymore. You're, you're like Simon and Gomorrah. The immorality and the idolatry has run on for so long and you just, you just don't even care anymore. You're just paying lip service to what I've asked you to do and 
I'm fed up with that. Listen to how fed up he is with it. Even beyond calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 11, he says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now that's kind of funny because he said he delights in that, right? He says that's how, in fact, sins are rolled forward. They're not going to be forgiven until the cross. But he says that's how you become pleasing to me as you offer these sacrifices. And Israel is offering them. They're doing the sacrifices right. And in most, uh, most times, they're even doing them in the right place. In Jerusalem at the temple, they're doing them the right way. Why is he not pleased with them? Because their lives don't match up to the sacrifices. They're saying one thing but doing another. And they're living lives that are inconsistent with who he wants them to be. Check out what else happens in verse 13. So the sacrifices aren't working anymore. Look at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Isn't, isn't that an interesting statement? Because he's the one who has required them to come before him. He's the one who has required that they come to him and worship and bring these sacrifices. And now he's saying, I don't want them anymore. And in fact, this walking to me, walking to my altar to, to absolve yourself of, of your sins that I required of you, all I see is you trampling on my courts. Because your lives are inconsistent with what he wants from them. Verse 13, he says, bring no more vain offerings. And there's, there's one clue out of so many in this book that their offerings weren't inconsistent with what he wanted. It was their lives that were inconsistent. They, they were doing the right things. They just weren't the right people. They weren't living the right way. So bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. He's the one that appointed those things. He's the one who made those things, who made those days, the new moons and the Sabbath, he's the one who made those obligatory they're following the rules. Their hearts just aren't in them. They, they just don't care. They're going through the motions without any love for him. And he says that's not going to fly. That just will not work. In fact, it is a gross perversion of the kind of faith that he wants in his people. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, instead of a sacrifice, they're a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. In fact, in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Why, why are they spreading out their hands? Well, they're spreading out their hands in prayer, right? And, and he makes that clear in the rest of the verse. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. They're done. And they can come and to the altar in Jerusalem to the to the burnt offering, which would have it was huge, guys. It would have taken up maybe twice this stage, uh, this this area up here. It would have taken up this entire area plus some. Um, and they can come to that, and they can offer all the all the bulls and all the goats that they want. They can make all the prayers that they want. They can keep all the festivals that they want. And he is not pleased with them because their lives are not in line. They're not in sync with what he wants. So they can do all the things. They can pay all the lip service. They can go through all the motions. None of it's good enough because their lives aren't in sync with what he wants. That's where we were before our baptism. We were in that situation. You can bring all the things you want to him. You can make all the prayers. You can do all the good deeds. You can be the best person. You can give. You can be generous. You can be the nicest person. And none of it matters because of sin. And it's not that God is not wanting to save you. 
Remember, his arm's plenty long enough to be able to reach you, and he's hearing your cries. But there's a wall that's been built between you and him, and you put it there, and I put it there, and they put it there. Between each one of us, a wall of sin. He says that has to be broken down first before you can have a relationship with God. Listen to what he says in the book of Hosea. Hosea is an incredibly interesting book. Um, if you've never studied it, I would highly recommend you studying this book. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, you find this last verse I want us to focus on. Hosea's life is an illustration for what happens when God's people stop being God's people. I cannot fathom what Hosea's life must have been like. He's going, to, he's, he's going to go through every heartbreak that God went through. Maybe not everyone because he's human. He doesn't really understand. But he, he, he's a symbol for the kind of heartbreak that God is going through. His wife that he buys out of prostitution will leave him to go back into that lifestyle. He's going to have to go back and buy her out of that again. Uh, every heartbreak that God has endured because Israel is religiously cheating on him with all the other foreign gods around them. Hosea personifies in his life and in his marriage. And finally, by Hosea and Amos' day, God says, I'm done. He's been waiting for the last couple hundred years for them to come back, and they're just not. They're, it's just getting worse. Their lives are just getting more and more out of sync with him, with his will for who they should be. Their, their, their righteousness is, is gone, is decreasing day by day, and their, their, their sin and their wickedness and their evil thoughts, it's just increasing every single day. It's worse than it was the day before. And so he's, he's going to cut them off. And he does it in Hosea in the most interesting way. Again, Hosea's life is an illustration for God pulling away from turning his back on the people that were once his people. And so Hosea is going to have children with his wife. And he's going, the names of those children are going to be indicative of how God's going to treat the nation of Israel. Let's read it. Hosea chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. This is uh, Gomer is Hosea's wife's name. It's a great name for a woman, right? You should name all your daughters Gomer. Um, but in Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, he's talking about Gomer. He says, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. It's a terrifying statement, right? No mercy. What would we do without mercy? We would be in a dire situation, wouldn't we? Without mercy, without God's mercy, we would be in significant peril, destined for hell. That's what he's saying about these people. I will not have mercy on them anymore. Look what he says in verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. The, the, the kingdoms have been... Uh, dissected now. There's a northern nation of, of Israel and a southern nation of Judah. And so the southern nation of Judah is much better, much more in sync with who God wants them to be. And so he says, I'm going to have mercy on, on the southern nation of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. I'm going to save them by my strength. Not by theirs. Verse 8, when she, had her, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And so what are we going to call the son? Is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? Because you don't get a whole lot worse than no mercy. It gets worse. So she conceived and bore a son. Verse 9, the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Just got worse, right? Just when you thought it can't get any worse, it just it just got worse. You're not my people. 
I don't know you. I'm not in covenant with you. I'm not, I, don't, I don't know you. So he says in Matthew 7, verse 21 and 22, right? On the day of judgment, he's gonna, some of us are going to walk up to him and say, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I teach all these things? Didn't I do all these good things? He's going to say what? I never knew you. Not my people. That's where we were before our baptism, or before our salvation. We were in that kind of situation. Ostracized from God. Pulled away from Him. Thanks to our sin. But now we found joy, right? In Acts chapter 8, verse 39, you find the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip has, and we'll be talking about this more and more as we study the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, but in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is, is uh, traveling uh, down the road, and Philip comes alongside his chariot and he says, Hey, do you know what you're reading? And by the providence of God, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53. And again, we come back to Isaiah, right? Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus as the suffering servant. Uh, and so the, the, Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't know who Isaiah is writing about. Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? He doesn't know. And uh, so Philip comes up into the chariot and he, he starts talking to him about Jesus because that's who Isaiah is talking about in chapter 53. And finally, he gets down to the point where the eunuch looks over and he sees water. And apparently it's enough water to be baptized, to be immersed into, uh, to be submerged in. So he says, look, there's water. What's, what's keeping me from being baptized? And so you remember what Philip says, if... If you believe, let's go. If you really believe, if you're ready to submit everything in your life to become a devoted follower of Jesus, let's go. Let's get you baptized and you become a part of the kingdom. Your sins are washed away. That condition you were once in is gone now. And after the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized, he came up out of the water with joy. The same word that we're talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, joy. In Luke chapter 15, uh, you find a variety of uh, words. You find a variety of passages that use this exact same word for joy that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, when he says rejoice always. Luke 15, 5, he's talking about um, the parable of, of the, uh, the lost sheep. And when the, the master has 100 sheep and he loses one of them. And so he leaves the 99 in the, in the pasture and he goes out to look for the one. And when he finds the one, what's he do? He throws it on his shoulders and he goes home rejoicing, right? Uh, chapter 9 is when the woman finds the coin. She's lost, or she has 10 coins. She's only lost one, uh, but when she finds it, she rejoices Luke uh, 15, 21 through 24 is, is the parable of the prodigal son. All three of these stories are focused on the same event when a sinner goes from lost to saved. There's incredible joy there, right? There's incredible joy. And so what we really need to focus on tonight, though, is why we should feel this joy because we've been bought out of something we could not get ourselves out of. We didn't have the answer to sin. We couldn't have done it. We drew a blank on this one. We didn't know how or even that we were in trouble until he told us we were in trouble with sin. And then once we understood it, we couldn't get out of it on our own. We needed help. We needed specifically his help. And so now that he has shown us the way Joy ought to be the logical response. And out of our joy, out of that, that overflowing joy that we ought to have in our salvation is the persistence to share that with everybody around us. It ought to blow our minds that he has given this possession, this treasure, as Paul would say in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He's given this treasure in jars of clay. We're incredibly fragile, aren't we? We are incredibly fragile. If you ever dropped a terracotta pot, you probably know how fragile they are. And that, that's the kind of pot that, uh, that Paul's talking about here in 4, 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He, he says, you, this treasure has been 
put in something that is not worth the treasure that is inside of it. It's a bit like it's a bit like having something small, a pair of earrings or two thousand year old arrowhead or something like something that you treasure, putting it in the floor among all that wrapping paper. What happens to it, dads? Because we're the ones who throw away all that wrapping paper, aren't we? I'm death on wrapping paper. I don't know how many toys and stuff I've thrown away, little Lego pieces and all that stuff over the years. It gets thrown in the trash, doesn't it? That's the kind of thing we're talking about with jars of clay. That's, that's essentially what he's done. He's put this incredibly significant, the most significant treasure he could have possibly given to us. And he's put it in a very dangerous place, you and me. And he's depending on us to share that joy with others. That our joy would overflow, our, our joy at our salvation our, and our persistence in sharing that story and that way of salvation with everyone around us. He's given us that treasure. And that ought to humble us and that ought to blow our minds and that ought to make us even more persistent to share this treasure with everybody we meet because he's entrusted us with something so special. Has anybody ever given you um, something that w was really special to them? Every now and then the kids will come up and, and they'll, give you, they'll give us a, a picture that they've made or maybe a loved one will, will give you uh, an exorbitant amount of money or a really nice earrings or a nice necklace or a ring or something that's really special to them. Maybe a fam family heirloom or something of that sort. How, how do you handle that thing? You just throw it in your pocket? Maybe you wad up the piece of paper and put it in your back pocket? That's not how we handle those things, is it? We're very careful with it. We treasure those things. We find joy in those things. And this treasure that's in fragile jars of clay like you and me, we need to have such joy at Him giving us such an extraordinary gift that we share with everybody we meet. So one of the reasons that we can and should rejoice always, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, is because he's given us a gift that we didn't deserve. He gave us salvation, but then even on top of that, he made us the purveyors of salvation, the ones who hand it out, the ones who tell others that there is a Savior, that he wants them, that he's calling out to them to be saved today. That's our joy. That's one of the reasons that we should rejoice always because we have been given this incredible thing. An unimaginable gift. And he expects us to share with everybody around us. It's the logical thing to do, right? So tonight, if you haven't been baptized, I would love to sit down with you and study uh, about what Jesus demands from your life and how to be saved. Tonight, if you've already done that and you just need the prayers of this congregation to be who God would have you to be, to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful
Good evening, church family. A couple of announcements before we are dismissed. As a reminder, this Wednesday is Stepping Stones Dinner at 530. Uh, baked steak is on the menu. Uh, please come help support our, our mission fund. Um, also, uh, don't forget about January 21st. On Saturday will be the chili cook-off at 1 o'clock, and everybody's encouraged to come to that. Even if you don't make chili, still come. I'm sure there will be plenty of uh, crock pots around for everybody. Also, Life Group 1 will meet next Sunday after morning worship for soup or sandwiches. Uh, so please bring super sandwiches uh, for your life group. That's Rick Keister's life group. Also out in the foyer table is a, a new revised life group sheet. Um, if you have switched life groups, please put a note on that sheet to let the elders know that you switched to a different life group um, or you would like to switch. Uh, let them know as well. Um, and if you're not on the life group, please put your name on there as well. Okay. Okay. Um, updates on our prayer list. Remember, continue to keep Clint Galloway in your prayers, Terry Leap. Uh, remember the Lions family in your prayers at this time. Remember Michael Miller in your prayers. Remember, continue to keep Jennifer Baker in your prayers and Amber Spitzer. And remember to continue to pray for the Stevens family, the lost of Allison uh, West, who passed away this week as well. Um, and also all the ones who are traveling. It's good to see all the college students here still. And remember, continue to keep them in your prayers as well. Uh, that's all the announcements I have. If you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and take that now. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Last song tonight is My Life is in You on the screen only. My life is in you, Lord, my strength is in you, Lord, my hope is in you, Lord, in you, in you. My life is in you, Lord, my strength is in you. God in heaven, hallowed Father be thy name, hallowed be thy name. Dear Lord, we approach you as humble as we know how. Dear Heavenly Father, so very thankful that you are our God. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you forgive us our sins, our trespasses, dear Heavenly Father, so that there's nothing that separates us from you. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for you. Dear Lord, we're thankful for your grace and for your mercy, dear Heavenly Father. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your love, love that was shown so greatly to us while we were yet sinners that you offered your son as a sacrifice so that we may have a way to you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience. Thank you for long suffering. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. 
forgiving not as we forgive, dear Heavenly Father. We strive to, dear Lord, but you forgive when you forgive. You, you put our sins behind you. You cast them to the bottom of the sea. You separate them as far as the east is from the west. Help us to do that as well. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that as we approach this new year, dear Lord, you will be with us, dear Heavenly Father, that we will truly hunger and thirst after righteousness. We will commit our lives to you, dear Heavenly Father, and we'll carry our faith throughout the community, dear Heavenly Father. That as Brother Joe spoke this morning, dear Heavenly Father, as he confessed to losing the wonder and the, and the joy of the communion, dear Heavenly Father, dear Lord, help us to remember that day we were baptized. That joy that we felt, that weight that was off our shoulder. The peace that you gave us. And how we were on fire to spread that to everyone else we knew, dear Heavenly Father. We ask that you, you revive that in us, dear Heavenly Father. Put that back in us, dear Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you be with us, dear Heavenly Father, as we leave this place, as we start a new year, dear Heavenly Father, that we, we resolve to do better than what we've done before, dear Heavenly Father. Dear God, we ask that you be with each and every person here. Bless them, dear Heavenly Father. Help them. Hold them up with your right hand when they stumble, dear Heavenly Father. Help us to do the same. Dear God, we ask that you guide, guard, and direct us, dear Heavenly Father, every step we take. Put us on that narrow path and guide our step to where every step is on that narrow path. Dear Heavenly Father, as one day we hope to hear in around that good and faithful servant. It is these things in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.